And checking that world map in clocks, it's now 2022 in Iran. A half-hour time difference from surrounding countries. More countries joining this afternoon in the new year, saying goodbye to 2021. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett this afternoon. And one of the things that uh, really has come up during the last year is a switch away from single-use plastics. How do we feel about it? Is it something that we're accepting? A new poll says yes, indeed. In fact, public support remains high in B.C. for the federal government's plan to reduce plastic use right across the country. This, according to Research Co. Online survey finds 82% of British Columbians are in favor of banning single-use plastics. That's unchanged from a similar poll back in January. The federal government's proposed plan focuses on items such as checkout bags, many of them already disappearing, straws, many of them already going to paper, stir sticks, six packs, uh, those rings, the plastic cutlery, and food takeout containers. Mario Canseco is the president of Research Co. Mario, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. No change from last year and people feeling pretty much the same. Well, it's certainly a situation where uh, we've been talking about this for such a long time, particularly here in British Columbia, and we are more than ready uh, for whatever happens at the start of this year. We have a new ban that is going to be in place in the city of Vancouver. There are bans already in other parts uh, of the of BC, uh, but the level of support from residents to reduce our use of single-use plastics um, remains high. There hasn't really been any changes since we started tracking this at the start of 2021. Well, one of the big changes, I think, is some people are now seeing uh, alternatives when they go for things. Uh, if I go and get my super big gulp, I'm now using a paper straw. Uh, at the beginning, it seemed like um, when they introduced this, uh, the paper straw would turn to mush uh, after <laughs> about an hour, and I get very frustrated with it. And my response so a few months ago might have been different. Um, now I see that there are some changes and even those paper straws are a little bit better. Are we getting more used to the changes? What do you think? Well, one of the things that we track is our own behavior when we go to grocery stores. And we continue to see uh, roughly three out of five, uh, three out of four British Colombians um, who rely on their own reusable bag. And what is interesting about this is it's something that really skyrocketed during the COVID-19 pandemic. People didn't really want to put anything on a bag. They were felt that they were better off if they carried their own back to the store. And what's fascinating about this is that we have a big generational gap. Uh, people over the age of 55 are more likely to say that they always use their reusable bag when they go grocery shopping. It's a little bit of a mixed bag with Generation X, um, but significantly fewer people under the age of 35 are doing this. And you know they're in for a surprise if they go out shopping tomorrow in the city of Vancouver because they won't be finding any of those bags. Well, Vancouver is not the only one. I know Surrey, they've started to switch over too, to uh, to paper bags and uh, seeing more and more of that. So it is going to be a bit of a surprise and a bit of a shock for some going uh, right through. Um, I'm surprised with the younger people being uh, more reluctant to use uh, those cloth bags. So that that's a bit of a shocker for me. I thought that was uh, supposed to be the woke generation. <laughs> well, it was a little bit of a shock for me as well. You know, we've seen the way the younger generation reacts to other issues related to environmental concerns, you know, more likely to be 
uh, feeling that we need to do something about climate change, for instance. Uh, their views on issues such as pipelines here in British Columbia are certainly different than what we see with the over 55s. And what is really fascinating is that this is one of those topics where the behavior isn't really matching the level of concern. And, you know, one of the things that you can do as a city, as, as a municipality, um, is to actually compel them to do this. So what's going to be uh, really fun to watch in the next few months, at least from a sociological standpoint, is what is going to happen with this group? Are they going to be paying more money for paperbacks or are they going to embrace the reusable bag in the same way that their older counterparts? And we'll be taking some of your calls here at NW at 331-2899. Um, no, we're actually, let's go right to the live line, 604-280-9898 or star 9898. Free call on your cell. We'll do that after the break. But first, before we get there, Mario, it looks like there is some geo- geographical differences between um, different, uh, well, areas of Vancouver Island, uh, for example, stands out uh, with a little bit of a different response to this. Let's run through the geography of plastic here. Well, there are a couple of things where Metro Vancouver certainly lags. And what is interesting looking into the numbers is we seem to be having more people who are worried about this and who are actually acting in other parts of the uh, of, of BC. You know, we do have 75% of Metro Vancouverers who are using their bag a little bit higher in the island, a little bit higher in Southern British Columbia. Fraser Valley is the area that is lagging more at 67%. So this is one of the issues where you have that regional variation. The other one where we have it more is when it comes to recycling. You know, we have fewer than half of Metro Vancouverers who they who say that they recycle all of the time, going out of their way to take specific containers into their recycling bins. Um, the numbers are higher in the island than in other parts of the province, particularly in Northern British Columbia. So again, we see a situation where people seem to be embracing the policies, but not actually behaving in a way that matches that. It's interesting when you start to talk about uh, on Vancouver Island, I wonder if that's uh, reflective of more of an environmental, um, um, I guess, awakening over on the island or being in touch with the environment. Uh, Does that line up with any other uh, polls or research that you see? It does. Consistently, the island does remarkably well on issues related to environmental concerns. You know, part of it is that you know that you're bringing everything into the island, everything that you're consuming. And and I think they are definitely more careful when it comes to recycling and when it comes to using plastics than what we see in the mainland. And this has been consistent for quite some time. Whenever we ask people in the island about environmental concerns, they are more likely to be worried about specific issues related to pollution than what we see in Metro Vancouver or in the Fraser Valley. And Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett on this New Year's Eve afternoon. Before the break, we're talking about the acceptance of single-use plastics and the new research poll showing 82% of British Columbians are actually saying, yes, they don't mind banning single-use plastics. That's actually unchanged from a similar poll last year in January. And, well... It's interesting uh, for myself. I've had to go through a bit of a re-education, Mario. And, uh, you know, it's it, I, I don't mind. I, I'm switching. I'm moving around. I'm educating myself. Uh, is this what you're finding, Mario Canseco? It has taken some time for people to realize uh, that this is the way things are going to go. And, you know, part of it was uh, we had a significantly higher level of animosity towards this 
when it was first being discussed. You know, going back to 2008, 2009, uh, stores were starting to charge for those plastic bags and people reacted uh, very quickly. Uh, quickly to say that they didn't want that to happen and you know over time I think people have become more aware of the situation and I think it'll be similar uh, once we look into other issues such as single-use cups for coffee or soft drinks um, you know people might react uh, very vividly to the notion that they have to pay a little bit extra for that now uh, but over time maybe they will become used to it. And that's the other side of it, paying a little bit extra, uh, 15 cents to 25 cents. I'm hearing for some of those. We'll get some of your thoughts. Uh, 604-280-9898, star 9898, a free call on your cell. Let's go to Joanne in Vancouver. How do you feel about this? Hey there. Um, I'm a Gen Xer right on the cusp of the beginning of the age 55 group. And my generation was the one that was against the move to uh, single-use plastic to begin with. Um, I would much rather try to take my own bags to the store or pay an additional fee for a paper bag, particularly if those paper bags are sourced from a BC pulp and paper products. Um, it, you know, this province used to have a booming industry. That industry is now gone. It would be a good way to put money back into um, our province, create jobs, etc. And it really doesn't surprise me that the young kids or the younger generation is against what, um, sorry, not against, but uh, feels that we should be being able to do better, but they're not really doing anything about it. Because that's just a generational thing. We all did that in our 20s. And Joanne, it surprises me. I, I remember, and I'm uh, about the same age as yourself, uh, probably look a lot older, though. Um, but I remember back at a time when um, we were talking about moving away from paper because that was seen as more environmentally friendly and moving away from paper cups, paper bags. And that used to be the go-to especially paper bags at grocery stores. And then there was the move from paper bags into plastic bags. Mario Canseco Research Co., uh, has any of your research ever uh, reflected that, that we had paper bags a while ago? It does. You know, one of the things that changed dramatically is that we started to rely on the plastic bags for our own garbage. There was a time when we didn't uh, have to do that and we were buying plastic bags that we use for garbage. The way we dealt with things now, it's a little bit different. You know, you need to be able to put things in different containers. The fact that we moved into recycling programs made that a little bit easier. And in a way, the grocery shopping bag was a very convenient thing to have to dispose of garbage. So it's a little bit different now because of the regulations in some cities. But that was one of the reasons for the explosion of the whole plastic bag situation. People were using them for more than just a single use. That's exactly it. Of course, uh, I don't think anyone actually ended up uh, doing the intended use of going to those plastic bags for more than uh, one use. Uh, Maybe some faulty logic in that one. Greg and Langley, how are you dealing with this? Um, I don't have a problem with it. I'm 62. Um, Fort McMurray's been doing this for over 15 years, and they've been doing it autonomously. Like, I mean, you go to any of their stores, hardware stores, anywhere, you have to purchase a bag to put your stuff in. The other thing, the second point I got is, what about plastic diapers? Those are single-use also. I'll listen. 
That's interesting. And I remember, um, I'm going to be honest here. I remember my wife and I with, uh, with our son, who's now 11 years old, but we wanted to do the best thing possible and go to, uh, um, well, reusable diapers and had even the inserts, uh, back at the time lasted about a week and we gave up, um, Mario, is there a point of convenience for, and I know we're, we weren't the only ones, uh, lots of parents I've talked to said, yeah, 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 we gave up on those too. Um, it was too much of a fuss, hard on the uh, laundry system, hard on um, uh, just us living with it, and expensive. Uh, how does all that fi- kind of figure in? Uh, the diapers uh, still not uh, taken up uh, with this environmental move, is it? No, it's a combination of convenience and price. Uh, If we had a situation where the price of the disposable diaper were closer to the price of the reusable diaper, then more people would make the switch. But ultimately, it becomes a matter of the price and the convenience of just getting rid of it. You know, people have ways to work this out in their minds and say, well, it's only for a year, it's only for a little bit. Uh, It's not something that is going to be detrimental to anybody because, you know, this is the only child I'm having or, you know, there are so many ways in which you could look at this. Um, But part of it is the price. You know, if we had a situation where those uh, disposable diapers um, were more expensive, then maybe people would make the switch. Yeah, it's uh, the carrot and the stick, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, we, we can look into that differently, you know. Six years ago, if you had your own reusable cup at a coffee shop, you got a discount. Now you're going to have to pay to get a, a one that you would throw away. So sometimes the carrot works, sometimes the stick works. Before we let you go, uh, your research co uh, research uh, also out today. Uh, when it comes to unplugging electrical devices in homes, such as TVs, computers, cell phone chargers, uh, we're finding some new research there, aren't we? Yes, this is one of the main features that we had. If we remember the time when Al Gore was touring the world with his PowerPoint presentation, you know, there was all of this urging for people to unplug their electrical devices. And we only have 12% of British Columbians who are doing that all the time. So it's not something that has skyrocketed when it comes to our own behavior in the same way as, you know, limiting hot water usage or recycling more or using reusable bags. So maybe we all need a reminder about things that we don't need to have plugged all the time. And you heard John Strait mentioning this in the news, more countries where it's now 2022. They include in the last hour, Russia, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and most uh, countries now in Africa. Good afternoon. I'm Bruce Claggett filling in for Jill Bennett on this New Year's Eve edition. And uh, you may have recalled this story. We're looking at a deadline in the last week. And that deadline day is today for a Royal Canadian Legion branch here in Vancouver. Here's the update on a what's described as a very unnecessary and disturbing situation involving the branch that's been there for 75 years. The move by the Maplecrest Housing Society to evict Shalom Branch 178 located, uh, oh, down on Maple at 6th Avenue. And uh, this comes after almost, uh, well, 50 years going back to an agreement in 1973 where the Legion helped set up a nonprofit housing society, gave a million dollars to start construction on a 103-unit low-income seniors resident uh, residence right there at Maple and 6th. 
The Legion was promised free rent on its hall, including utilities and maintenance right into perpetuity. All of that on a handshake, apparently. And, well, handshakes mean different things to different people. But joining us uh, on this deadline day is counsel for the uh, Royal Canadian Legion branch there. Gavin Cameron, do you have any good news for us? Well, first, uh, Happy New Year to to you and everyone else uh, listening, and thank you for having me on. Um, I, I don't have any any good news um, in in so far as the Housing Society has declined all offers to uh, have a sit down and have a reasonable conversation, which is what the veterans would like to do. Uh, nor has BC Housing or the minister responsible for BC Housing, that would be the Attorney General, Mr. Eby, uh, responded to my emails, which is unfortunate um, because we're looking for a reasonable solution here. And I can say this, um, your comment about handshake deals, handshake deals mean a lot uh, to veterans and, and the generation of individuals who who operate this legion and are the folks who go there. Um, and, and they're quite dismayed uh, that, that it appears in current times, uh, handshakes are no longer worth what they used to be. A handshake is your word. I mean, that's an expression that uh, goes back for many generations and still holds up today in many circles. But uh, that word is for almost anything. Now, when it comes to your living conditions and uh, where you actually uh, are spending your final days, it means a oh a heck of a lot more, doesn't it? Well, this this legion has uh, the oldest surviving veteran in Canada uh, as a member, uh, who's uh, 110 years old, and and this legion was set up um, not the legion, pardon me, but the the social housing complex, which is now, as I said, um, part of the bailiwick of the provincial government under BC Housing. Um, several hundred thousand dollars were paid by this legion through donations and membership fees uh, to construct this wonderful facility for uh, senior citizens and and low-income residents. And and since that time, the Legion itself, when folks have fell on even harder times, has contributed funds to contribute to their rent and and help the tenants. And, And now, over Christmas, with the deadline of New Year's Eve, they're being told that the veterans have to vacate uh, their Legion Hall, which is incredibly important to them, as one can imagine. I mean, some of these folks, they, they fought on the beaches of Normandy. They served our country, and they're now being treated this way, which, which you know, uh, I think any right-thinking member of society would have a problem with. Why was this such a surprise? Why did it come up uh, during Christmas? Uh, was there any way to see this coming uh, down the pike? Well, the, the letter was sent um, purporting to terminate a lease, even though, and, and without getting into uh, legal details, because I know that's, that's not of interest to anybody beyond lawyers, um, but there is no lease. Um, there was a notice of termination delivered in, in mid-November, and it was said to be effective uh, as of today. Now, I was the Legion reached out to me just before Christmas, and I've started to help them since then. Um, but, but certainly the timing, um, at least as I'm familiar with the practice, uh, reputable financial institutions don't foreclose on people's houses over Christmas, uh, n- nor should uh, a non-profit society, which was funded by the Legion, uh, be going after the Legion over Christmas. Well, there are two things here. You don't uh, foreclose over the holidays. That's almost standard practice, and it uh, the optics never look great. 
But the optics never look great uh, when you're talking about vets and the Royal Canadian Legion. Um, optics don't matter so much if you go to court. Uh, what are your chances? Is it going to go to court? Where do we stand now? Well, as I said, I, I certainly hope not. Um, the the deadline is midnight tonight. Uh, the Legion is not doing a walking away. We don't do a walking away. They didn't do a walking away on the beaches of Normandy. They're not doing a walking away now. Um, but they're not spoiling for a fight. And my hope is that responsible levels of government, we've already had the Member of Parliament for the riding weigh in. This is Mr. Eby's riding. And I'm hoping that the provincial government will weigh in, or failing that, the housing society will act reasonably. Um, but if there's a fight to be had, as I said, we don't do walking away. You wrote a letter, didn't you? Uh, what did that letter uh, have to say regarding this situation? Well, the, the letter expressed disappointment um, to, to begin with, uh, but, but it also referred to the fact that there, there's a trust. Um, this isn't a lease. This isn't a landlord-tenant dispute. The Legion spent uh, a very, very substantial amount of money in the early 1970s, almost half a century ago, to construct low-income housing, uh, which has benefited hundreds and hundreds of individuals. And that land was provided to the society, which, by the way, was formerly known as the Shalom Branch Number 178 Building Society. It's only recently changed its name, and you can take from that what you will. Uh, but, but the land that constitutes the Legion Hall, a small portion of the premises, was to be held in trust for the Legion to allow the veterans, some of whom resided in the apartment complex, to socialize, raise funds, and do good works for the community. And, and it's of some interest that this is a dry legion. Um, there's no bar there. there. There's no way of raising revenue uh, other than um, contributions from elderly members. And, and this is a legion that has done a lot of good above and beyond building this social housing complex for the community surrounding it for the last 75 years. Gavin Cameron, legal counsel for the Branch 178 of the Royal Canadian Legion facing today being eviction day. Does that really matter, the date? Uh, or are these just uh, things that you have to actually uh, put on a piece of paper? Well, I don't know. Uh, the, the, the date is the date, and, and the Legion's been told they're being evicted over Christmas um, so, so the date certainly matters if the Housing Society intends to follow through uh, on its threat, which, again, it's refused to negotiate, not just in good faith, but it's refused to negotiate or sit down and have a discussion at all, uh, which is very unfortunate. And Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett this afternoon. Boy, you take a look at those North Shore mountains and you get the sunshine and they're just absolutely spectacular. But I bet the view is even better when you're up on one of them, uh, either skiing or snowboarding or inner tubing, whatever it is, looking down on the city. Simon Whitehead is with the, well, he's marketing sales and communication manager with Mount Seymour and is joining us now. Simon, uh, what's it like? Oh, it's pretty phenomenal. Um, it's a bit chilly, but we've got sunshine and tons of snow. Tons of snow, I guess, uh, with all the snow that fell down here, it must be uh, one of the better years thus far. Yeah, so far it's looking pretty good. We've got about two metres in the parking lot, which is above average um, for this time of year. But what's really exciting is that because 
the, the temperatures have been so consistently cold is that we've got this beautiful kind of like fluffy kind of interior quality snow at the moment. We talk about uh, champagne powder and uh, often re- in reference to the snow in the interior. Is that what you're talking about up there? Uh, is it that kind of really fine snow? Yeah, when you blow it, it will kind of blows through the air and you can see all the crystals in the air as they hit the sunlight. It's pretty, it's pretty special. And the great thing is that because we haven't had the freeze-thaw cycles, that all the snow is still on the trees, it's a, it's a total winter wonderland. Got to mention, this has been, it it's must be a different year for you when you start to take a look at COVID protocols. And uh, some people may even uh, scratch their heads a little bit and think, uh, I don't want to go anywhere near uh, the ski slopes. Tell me about what you've done at Seymour and what the industry has done on the whole to make things uh, safer for people going up. Well, for this year, obviously, um, we want everyone to stay at home if they're feeling sick, and that's gone for our staff as well. Um, The biggest change we introduced last year was we actually put in four-hour time slots for our skiing and snowboarding. The idea being that we can create a bit more space on the mountain rather than having everyone turn up at the same time. And um, that was so successful last year that we've actually carried that over to this year as well. So fewer people, you get a time slot. Uh, How do you register for that? Is that done ahead of time online or by phone? Yeah, everything's done pre-purchase now. So we totally moved to 100% uh, pre-purchase last year. Um, which had its, had its challenges with new technology, but we're pretty much there now. And the idea being is that you know we'll have a hundred. Well, instead of having kind of a hundred percent of the people here all the time, we can have seventy five percent of the people here at any one time, but a hundred percent of the people over the course of the day, just by spreading everyone out and giving everyone a bit more space. Simon Whitehead is with Mount Seymour, and we're talking about some of the ski conditions and actually. Actual uh, precautions taking place up at uh, Mount Seymour. Simon, is uh, this what the industry is doing now? Uh, what are you hearing from uh, from people uh, in uh, at different uh, mountains? Well, I, I can only really speak for Mount Seymour, but we're all um, following the provincial health orders. Um, and we're all doing exactly what is uh, needed to be done. So we're all following our guidelines as far as, as far as you know, where, when it's a restaurant that people will need a vaccine certificate to enter those. Um, similarly, um, we're asking people to wear uh, masks indoors. We're basically, whatever there is a provincial health order, um, we're all following. How does that work on a chairlift? Um, what about uh, singles when you're matched up with somebody uh, going up a chair? A great question. Well, what we're doing this year is we have brought back the singles line, and we didn't have one last year. But what we're doing is if anyone um, feels uncomfortable sharing a chair with anyone, they just need to tell the lifty, and they are absolutely welcome to ride the chair by themselves. So you do have uh, the singles line still in place, if I remember right, but uh, you can actually uh, just go up by yourself if you want to. Yeah, but if there's two of you and you don't feel comfortable traveling with other people, you're absolutely more than welcome to travel by yourself. I know uh, Seymour has been a destination in the past for uh, inner tubers. It's not just uh, skiers and boarders. Is that continuing or was that called off? Uh, no, absolutely. We have all our activities uh, running. So we have our tubing. Um, obviously, everything's running at reduced capacity. So we have our tubing running. We have our tobogganing. And we also have all our snowshoe trails open, which is a great way to social distance. Um, and... 
I know right now I'm just taking a look at the forecast. Uh, yes, it has been this fantastic weekend. Today is a beautiful day for going up there, but things are about to change. Uh, I'm seeing that there's wind coming in. It's going to rain down on the ground. It's getting warmer uh, this weekend. Are you holding out any hope that this weekend is going to be a weekend where people can head up to the slopes? Oh, it's going to be an absolutely fantastic. I am very, very excited about Monday the 3rd. Um, it's going to be about minus six. So I guess it's going to be about zero in the city, but minus six on the local ski hills. And it looks like we are going to get about 60 centimeters of powder on Sunday. Uh, and so Monday is going to be exceptional for people who love uh, powder skiing. 60 centimeters uh, expected for up there. So <laughs> that's interesting. Uh, what we're hearing about uh, down at sea level and in the lower mainland is uh, this big rainstorm coming in. And we're getting worried about uh, that, especially on Sunday, I believe, in listening to Mark Mandriga earlier today. Um, but that's not the case up on the mountains, as is often the situation. Uh, it's going to be cold enough up there, I think. Is that it's going to be? We're looking at minus five, minus six, so it'll be beautiful snow. And for the rest of the ski season, even when it warms up or uh, gets to well, I shouldn't say warm up, uh, there's nothing you can do about that. But when it starts to get drier and you start to have uh, less snow, do you have the machines up at Seymour that I see all over uh, the other mountains, uh, the snow blowing or snow making machines? No, no, at all. We don't have any snowmaking machines. Um, but what we have done, um, we spent a huge amount of time and effort, and I think it's about 1,300 earth-moving trucks with dirt doing summer grooming. So over the years, we have um, kind of filled in all the holes and covered all the rocks with dirt on our ski runs. So we can actually run our ski resort now in half as much snow as we could five years ago. So you move the snow around? Yeah, no, so what we've actually done in the summer, we put a lot of dirt down and we've, we call it summer grooming. So we've put a lot of dirt and we've brush cut and we've moved the bits and pieces and filled in holes. So our slopes are really smooth now. So what it allows us to do is it allows us to operate on far less snow than previously. So even though we don't have snow machines, we can actually now operate in half as much snow. And Simon, for those uh, that want to uh, ring in the new year, last minute plans, uh, what time is Seymour open till? We are open until 9.30, and the great news is we still have some lift tickets available for the 4.30 and 5.30 time slots. And Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett on this New Year's Eve afternoon. And boy, if you're uh, making plans, uh, some of those plans may have you at home on this day where COVID-19 and the Omicron variant is uh, spreading faster than anything imaginable. And uh, taking a hit... Well, for New Year's Eve and for maybe some period beyond that is BC's hospitality industry, knowing that firsthand are some of the people that uh, would otherwise be planning for a special evening at bars and restaurants. We've got Michael Brennan, the owner of the Heatley on East Hastings, and have talked with him uh, in the past. But uh, Michael, boy, what's uh, going to happen at the Heatley tonight? Well, we're, uh, I mean, to a certain degree, we've, we've had to kind of navigate these waters before, so we're not totally in unfamiliar territory. Um, but yeah, we've definitely, you know, scaled back on uh, celebratory events around here. You know, we were initially looking at having some live music. Uh, so we've pulled all the plug on that. We do have uh, 
you know, because we are a pub restaurant set up, you know, we still have the ability to have somebody come in and play some records. So, you know, essentially we're just having uh, some background music. Uh, but other than that, it will be, you know, uh, you know, obviously we are a pretty, we're a pretty social kind of place, typically speaking. So tonight obviously will be uh, a lot more uh, restrictions put in place. So, you know, obviously our patrons will be expected to remain seated at all times. And, uh, you know, once you're in with your group or party of less than six, your the expectation will be that, you know, you you politely stay in your seats and uh, f- until your duration of your meal or drink is done and, and, and then on to the next one. So uh, as far as I know, we're not restricted from an hour's point of view and we're not restricted from uh, the amount of patrons we're allowed to have in because, again, we are a sort of a pub restaurant setting, uh, but definitely as far as like sort of the, the festive celebratory side of things, we've definitely curbed that quite a lot. Now, if we could go back to the before times and uh, think of New Year's Eve, uh, December 31st, for anyone in the hospitality industry, especially a bar or a bar restaurant, uh, that would be business-wise one of the bigger days, would it not? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's always, I mean, there's always a cost that comes with putting on a, a New Year's Eve event as well, you know, like, you know, payment for uh, entertainment is usually higher. Uh, but typically speaking, you know, you're, you know, we don't often do a door charge here, but sometimes on nights like that you would. So, yeah, I mean, definitely as you roll into January, which for, you know, most of us in this industry is, is when uh, it's sort of a slow season. So, you know, typically uh, you're, you're gearing up with your Christmas parties and then, you know, New Year's is kind of how you cap off the, the end of the year with, you know, hoping to put some money in the bank and uh, give you a little nest egg to, you know, sort of get through the quieter months of, of January, February type thing. So, you know, for a, lo- a lot of businesses, you know, definitely friends of ours in the industry that run, you know, music venues and, and bars, a uh, big hit for them for sure. I know some uh, bars and bars restaurants uh, have uh, switched over to a greater portion of their business being uh that uh, almost uh, Uber Eats or DoorDash or delivery services. Has that been the case for you? You know what? It's interesting you ask that because, you know, in the in the earlier stages of, of dealing with this, that was something that we did explore, uh, you know, as, as the owner-operator here and actually was the person who I built the bar myself. And, you know, the whole kind of concept of the Heatley is it's an in-house experience. You know, this is a neighborhood pub. The whole idea of it is where people get together and come meet their neighbors, meet their friends from the community. So for us, it was a really tough thing to try to package to go because it really just wasn't the nature of our business, you know. So, you know, if we were sort of, a, you know, maybe more food forward, you know, I say we're, you know, we're sort of drinks, entertainment, food. So we, you know, so we, that's all, all three of those elements are what we sort of, we offer here. And that, unfortunately, it doesn't package well to go. So we didn't really pursue that avenue because for me, it was almost like the, the additional cost of setting up those services for us just didn't seem to make it worth our while. Indeed, a tough choice, especially if you're trading on community and experience. And uh, one can understand that. But the flip side of it now is uh, dealing with uh, employees. And I know that's always a bit of a challenge, not dealing with employees. You know what I mean. Um, But having uh, your staff in a situation where more of them may be in the days ahead or already coming down sick. How are you able to keep going? 
Well, you know, and and I, I don't mind having full disclosure on this. You know, we definitely, a few weeks ago, we had our, surprisingly enough, our first COVID uh, experience or outbreak here, and it went through our staff, like you wouldn't believe. So in a way, we all kind of got hit with it at the exact same time, uh, which just sort of happened to coincide with Christmas break. And, you know, it, with even with some uncertainties in place, we just we just shut down operations for the better part of a week and just sort of had everybody tested. Some people definitely had it. Some did not. But we just had to pull the plug. You just got to like we shut it down and waited for test results to come back in. And uh, I mean, we have a small crew here. Again, I feel like most of us are now in a position where our, our, our health is is in a good place and we should be OK moving forward but absolutely a concern and certainly building up to it. You know, there's a lot of anxiety that's, that surrounds that, especially working in this industry because there's so much uncertainty as to how it's going to impact your health individually. And again, in a business like this, when it, when it hit us, we, we shut everything down. Just had to immediately. Yeah. Right. We're talking with Michael Brennan, uh, owner-operator of the Heatley on East Hastings Bar and Restaurant, and uh, certainly a challenge at the best of times running any business like this. But uh, what are you hearing from staff? Are they uh, concerned about uh, conditions or or their own, uh, and I don't mean conditions necessarily at the Heatley, but uh, just being a server with a pandemic that uh, continues on? Yeah, I mean, definitely, I mean... The bigger fear for them, and I mean for some of the staff that have have gone through COVID now, who thankfully uh, were able to uh, manage their health quite well and no serious, uh, you know, concerns with it. But um, it's it's really how it hits the the pocketbook for most. You know, if uh, if you're hit with this and you're forced to close, and there aren't government uh, subsidies in place that people can access immediately, that's the part where people get hit the most. Another area where I feel in this industry where we've struggled is we should really have access to rapid testing kits available to us, I feel, at all times. And right now, there's none. To, like You can sign up, you can register as a business, and you can find some, but they're so depleted, the stock levels, that when we're re-entering into the workforce here again and not having the ability to test our staff the way that we too, like say they are in the film industry or other or other areas of work, that's the part that becomes concerning for us because if you can't get access to a test and you're having some health concerns, we tell people to stay home. But then if people are staying home and they don't, let's say, have a, a doctor's note or a test, you're you're essentially you're having to remove yourself from your you know your your paying work and you don't have the ability to assess your own health at that time. So. Michael, that's something we're hearing uh, more and more, and many of our listeners will identify with, uh, especially if they're business owners having those uh, rapid tests. It's uh, almost more of a uh, want and desire and necessity for business right now. Thank you very much for uh, joining us, and all the best to your wife, uh, who I know, Shannon, and uh, your family. Uh, and uh, and the best to you at the Heatley on East Hastings. Michael Brennan, thank you. Thank you. Happy New Year. Well, it's now 2022 in Egypt, Israel, Greece, and 30 other countries. Good afternoon. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett, and Happy New Year's Eve to you. We had Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix in a newser earlier today. And one of the things coming out of it is BC limiting the long-term care visits to only essential visitors. 
We will be restricting visitors to long-term care to essential visitors only. We need to decrease the numbers of people coming into our long-term care homes so that we can best protect the seniors and elders in our care homes and ensure that healthcare workers in those settings have uh, are able to manage and cope. This will be a measure that we'll have in place for as short a period of time as possible, and I will be reevaluating this on January 18th. Understandable, of course, and I think we all know the reasons for this, but uh, very difficult, of course, for families and for the people living in long-term care. And on the line, CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of BC is Jennifer Lyle. Jennifer, um, this isn't easy, is it? No, it's not. And I think the, the thing to remember as well is that what this means is for the vast majority of people living in long-term care and assisted living right now, that actually means that they won't have contact with their family members other than through a screen or a window pane. Because we know that when it was last reported on, only about 15 to 24% of people living in long-term care actually have a designated essential visitor. Jennifer, I know in my own, and I'll share this uh, with you and our listeners, my own situation, I do have a mother in the final stages of dementia and it's been very difficult because even with those window-type uh, viewings or with the uh, any other sort of approach, uh, she doesn't understand it. It's very confusing. Uh, is this something that you're hearing a lot for people with Alzheimer's? Absolutely. I mean, you know, your story is, is one of many, unfortunately. We hear stories of people talking about how their loved one doesn't understand during a video call, that it's actually a live call. It's not just a recording of a video. We have people who have trouble hearing uh, hearing the calls because maybe they have some audio audio processing issues as well. And so what we, what we hear from people is that it, it's really difficult to maintain that social connection. And the other thing that we need to remember, too, is that family members coming in to visit, so-called visit in long-term care are doing so much more than that. They're providing know, support with with mealtimes, they're providing emotional connection, they're providing solace and companionship. So it's so much more that we're losing when we move to this this sort of situation that we're in right now. It's no real easy answer too, is there? I I mean, when you're dealing with staff members and a shortage at times with uh, staff members, any family member coming up uh, or coming in is going to be able to clearly see that there is a difference right now from what has been in the past to uh, to the level of, um, and I hate to say the level of care because everyone's doing their best, but there are differences right now, aren't there? For sure. And, you know, I know everybody working in long-term care is absolutely working their guts out right now. And we hear wonderful stories of, of people going above and beyond. The challenge that we're seeing, though, is that when you're in a situation of staffing shortages, you don't have time for a lot of things beyond just the basics of toileting and feeding. And people need so much more than that. Uh, you know, I think it's it's really interesting to note as well just the difference in provincial approaches on this one. In Ontario, they very clearly recognize the value of family member presence in long-term care because even though they've also similarly moved to, to essential visits only, which makes complete sense, they have a policy that allows residents to designate up to two people each per resident as an essential care partner. And we don't have any equivalent like that here in BC. Jennifer Lyle is the CEO of Alzheimer's Society of BC. It's interesting you mention uh, the one person or two people. It's a very emotional thing for people going into a visit at a care home. 
And I know for myself, uh, just being the only person going in there, I, I almost want the support of my wife or somebody next to me. And it also is easier, I think, on my own mother if there is uh, somebody else there. Um, so that is a difference. Is there a lot of understanding with uh, what you're finding out about some of the special needs that uh, those living with Alzheimer's have? Absolutely. So, you know, I'll share one story that I, I heard recently, actually, from someone whose who's mother is in long-term care currently, who is living with dementia. Uh, and again, nothing against the staff in that in that care home. They're do, by, the daughter was saying, you know, they're doing an excellent job. But one of the things that she noticed is that uh, her mom was, was not eating her meal when she was going into her room. And one of the things that she realized uh, and was able to flag for the care staff is that her mother was losing her sight. It's just that she was the one who noticed because her mother wasn't wasn't eating. Her tray was placed beside her, but she wasn't eating her food. And so they were able to figure out why. But that's just one example of the, the critical role that family members play in coming into the care home to help support their loved one. Well, the family members certainly have the history of knowing uh, what their loved one is like and uh, can identify things just based on patterns like that. And um, losing sight, uh, that's one of those ones that really... Um, hits home. Uh, You'd think that uh, somebody in a care home might be able to pick up on that, but how would they know? They don't have the years of history with with their loved ones, uh, with like somebody like myself going in. So it's it's tough, isn't it? For sure. And I mean, you know, you hit on a great point there about having the years of history. Uh, There was one story that I heard recently of a woman who's been married to her husband for over 65 years. And when they were going through this separation early on in the pandemic, she described it as being like her soul being ripped out of her body. A really profound connection that was lost in feeling forcibly separated from her husband as a result of the measures taken to, to try and protect him from COVID. So it's, it's challenging and family members bring such great depth of understanding of the person, their history, their needs. They can spot trends because they know this person inside out and backwards. So they're really an asset. And when we talk about staffing shortages, you know, this is the time to bring family members in. They can help. They can support. I mean, we even saw that earlier on in the pandemic where care homes would actually bring family members in as volunteers to support staffing levels. So family members are there as an asset. They shouldn't be treated as a liability. A lot of people may not pick up on this or actually understand, but Jennifer, you do have situations where couples could go into a long-term care home together and that's great family supports them in doing this and then their needs differ and uh, one of them ends up in a situation where they need uh, different care because of Alzheimer's. Another one, like in the case of my family, uh, my father had cancer and it was terminal. So you had this separation even in the same home of different wings. Um, that puts even more pressure on the system, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, you shared your story there. You know, we hear similar stories of spouses who've been separated, for example. You have somebody who's in an independent living residence, for example, and then their spouse moves into long-term care because maybe they're they're dealing with some cognitive issues or some extra health issues themselves. Um, and, and that can present some significant challenges. And, you know, if the spouse in who's living in independent living isn't recognized as an essential visitor, then that means they're no longer able to go and see their husband, for example, of 65 plus years. Jennifer Lyle, CEO of Alzheimer's Society of BC. 
And uh, if you had one hope, Jennifer, for 2022, for things changing for the better, what would that one hope be? (laughs) I think it's a long list, but I think in this particular instance, my sincere wish is that we recognize the important role that family members play in person-centered care when it comes to people who are living with dementia. And we find ways to use the, the powerful tools of vaccines, of booster shots, and of rapid tests to make that possible. Indeed. And thank you very much uh, for sharing your time with us and all the best in 2022 to you, Jennifer.